can I just let you know, I will be glad when this sermon's over, okay? If you think you'll be glad when it's over, let me tell you, I will be, okay? Because when you look at Revelation 15 and 16, you just can't make it fun. And so this morning we are looking at aligning with wrath, okay? And uh, this is, let's get straight into it, Revelation 15, John is having a vision here of uh, heaven and uh, the future. He's had the heavenly realm just unveiled to him. And this is what it says. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held hearts given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. You'll remember Israel was delivered through the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses. This is a song by those who have been delivered by God and set free. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this, says John, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So again, we have John seeing. We've, we've said Revelation is cinematic. It's visual. It's not just cerebral, intellectual, it's to get in our spirit, we're to imagine when we read it, we're to let our imaginations run and to try and envisage what what was it John was seeing here. And so this is what he saw in Revelation 15. Revelation 16 is then these seven bowls of wrath, it says, poured out on the earth and we'll come to what that was. But in Isaiah 61, uh, sorry, 63, there's an enigmatic passage. It's talked in Isaiah 62 about God coming. See your saviour comes with his reward and recompense. So Isaiah sees God coming. Now, just to say, prophecy in the Old Testament worked on different levels. It could mean something immediate. It could mean a couple of hundred years later. It could mean at the end of time. And I think we've got something of that here. It talks about God's delivering his people at the time, but it's also, I think, God moving at the end of time. And so Isaiah says this, Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, Isaiah asks? like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. 
I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. God isn't always seeker-friendly, is he? What's happening here is this. It seems that God says, I'm coming, and I'm coming in judgment, and I'm coming with anger. And we're going to go into, well, what's, what's he angry with? But it, he's asking, who will support me? Who will stand with me? And in that passage we just read, it, it's, God says this, there was no one who gave support. God was looking for people to align with him in his wrath. And he found no one. Well, in Revelation 15 and 16, again, it talks about God's wrath, God's anger. And we'll come to what is God's anger? What's it like? But the response there is different. You see, the angels and the martyr in Revelation 15 and 16, we see them singing. Things like, just and true are your ways, righteous are your acts that have been revealed. The martyrs, those who've given their lives up for Christ, their response is, true and just are your judgments. So there in Revelation, in the heavenly realm, there are those who say, we will stand with you, God, in your wrath. We align with that. We affirm it. If you like, they're actually saying, we believe that your wrath comes from your goodness, God. So it's a different response to the one in Isaiah. And the question I want us to look at this morning is this. Where do we stand with the wrath of God? Do we have some sympathy for the nations who kind of said, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure I get this. Do we struggle with God's anger? Or notwithstanding the difficulties we may have, do we nonetheless align with God and declare his judgments are just and true? Let me just say where I'm at, if you like. I know that whilst on the one hand intellectually I may affirm that God is good, and, and he cannot ever be anything that is not good, and therefore his, his wrath must be good. Nonetheless, I find myself with difficulties reconciling that emotionally, if you understand what I mean. And I think that's legitimate. It means I'm not, you know, I, I find it difficult. I'm not arguing against it, but in terms of where I'm at emotionally, I think the wrath and judgment of God is so terrible in the sense of awesome. That it's not something that we easily revel in. Just to point out, the wrath of God is not part of his character. His holiness and purity is, his wrath, his anger, is a response to what he sees in the world. He was never meant to be wrathful. If the world had remained perfect, God would never have been wrathful. But I believe the Bible teaches that the world is such 
But he is just in his response to that. And we'll see what that means. So we're going to look at what is this wrath of God? And is there ways in which, are there ways in which our understanding is deficient such that we don't find it easy to align with and struggle with that? And there are teachings out there that would argue that, that God is not wrathful. God does not have anger. It doesn't suit our Western society, postmodern sense and sen- sensibilities, does it? But I just, I just think, well, I'm not sure people have read their Bibles then if that's where they come from. I just, when I look at the prophets, they seem to be speaking on behalf of God, a God who is holy and pure. So let's have a look then. So firstly, an analysis of wrath. What is going on in Revelation 15 and 16? Well, we've got another series of seven. We've had so far, if you've been here, seven seals, seven trumpets of warning. And now we've got seven bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. I don't think these are sequential. I don't think we had first the seven seals and then in history it's talking about the seven trumpets and then later these bowls. I think they're, they overlap. It's a retelling of world events with increasing revelation. Someone's called it progressive parallelism. We have parallel tellings of world events that become increasingly reveal things for us. And so one writer, Hendrickson, said this, the visual symbols we see in Revelation depict abiding and repeated principles and dynamics which operate throughout history everywhere. Do you get that? What it's saying is what we see are things that are going to be repeated through history. That's what's going to happen. It's why every generation has thought they've lived in the end times. Every generation has thought they've lived in the end times. Medieval period, end times, sack of Rome, end times, World War II, World War I, end times. And and there's many of us today, we think, we're close. One day there will be a generation, by the way. It's why every generation has felt this, because these repeated things that we see talked about in Revelation happen throughout history. And so we have here a reiteration with these seven bowls of wrath, okay? Just to add a moment of lightness, somebody did say to me, as I was going away, uh, we just had a kind of bit of holiday, Romania, as I was going away and knowing that this was the sermon I was coming back for, I said, uh, I'll see you on the uh, seventh then for the bowls of wrath. And they did say, that would be a good name for an Indian restaurant, wouldn't it? Okay, just, uh, just to add a bit of levity, I thought it was quite quick. Anyway, back to the bowls. So what we had with the seven trumpets in Revelation 8 to 11 and the seven bowls, if you read the first trumpet, so the numbers there, the first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, and the first bowl, talk about similar things. It's what says to me, this isn't chronological, it's parallel, okay? So what happens is there is a warning because God is going to move in the earth. He's going to pour his anger out and we're going to see things in the earth. We're going to see things in the seas, We're going to see things happening to the rivers. We see this around us, don't we? To the sun. We may not have necessarily seen signs in the sun. Are these things going to happen? And then the fifth trumpet, the fifth bowl, it talks about the demonic. The fifth trumpet warns of a release of demonic powers. I don't know what you make of that. We seem quite happy to accept there's a heavenly realm and angels, but but what about this evil? 
Then we see evil of the world that is beyond human capacity. It is, it is demonic, I think. It is pure evil. And so God says, I'm going to judge that. I'm going to pour out my wrath on the demonic, on the throne of Satan. And then sixthly, there's wrath going to be poured out on Euphrates. It's, it's, many commentators think that stands for kind of powers like Assyria, Babylon, that, that were based around the Euphrates. It talks about human kingdoms set up, often wicked, evil kingdoms set up in defiance of God. And so we see this reiteration here with these um, elements. And then secondly, we've got a reiteration of enemies, God's enemies. Mark dealt with it last time out. Um, In Revelation 16, it talks about, again, about the dragon that we've already come across, the working of Satan in the world, that ancient serpent, Satan. Revelation 13 has talked about the beast, the first beast. It stands for kind of secular authorities who persecute the church. And then the false prophet, the second beast, that stands for religious persecution of God's people. Hence, a false prophet, a religious connotation there. So we've got a reiteration of these symbols. This is what's going to happen in the earth. We're going to see things happening in the earth. It's going to become a bit chaotic. Notice, things are going to happen to the environment. And I think it's here in Revelation. So what is this wrath? What is this anger of God? What does that look like? Well, John Stott says this, it's the steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms. There are times I get angry, and I'm sure there are times you get angry. Problem with my anger all too often is this, it's not steady. It's not purely against evil. It often comes out of how I'm feeling, how tired I am, whether, you know, what, what's happened that day, etc. There are times when I vent, you know, and it's a bit, it can be a bit unpredictable and a bit erratic. God's working on all our character. Thank God for that. So it's not, the anger of God is not unpredictable. It's not spiteful. I think, therefore, it's a source of reassurance. Look what another writer says, Liam Morris. It's the burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. It means this. Someone, somewhere in the universe, is perfectly angry at sin and evil. Somewhere there is a being who has perfect, whole, pure anger at sin and evil in the world and is determined to do something about it. Sin and evil will have its day. God will ensure that. And that should be a reassurance for us, folks. Injustice is going to be dealt with. Pain and suffering caused by others is going to be dealt with. God's going to ensure this happens. We'll come back to some of that in a minute. So what can we say about wrath then? What are we told here? Well, firstly, it's being revealed in creation now. In Revelation 15, 7, it says, The angels 
the, the bowls of wrath are given to the angels by four living creatures. Now, many commentators think those living creatures are guardians of creation. They stand at the four corners of the earth. So it's like this. The guardians of creation, even creation itself, is giving permission to God to do justice to what's being done to creation. Romans 8 says, doesn't it, creation groans. I don't, think, I don't think creation's alive in the sense of it has a living spirit other than humankind. But we have messed up creation. And God's going to act on behalf of creation. One day he's going to renew creation. In Romans 1, I should have put these verses up, it says that the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness of human beings. And what it says there, the wrath of God looks like is this, God lets us go our own way. There are times when we push God that far as a human society, he lets us go our own way. And hence we see in some societies utter lostness, utter chaos. Men and women turning their backs on God, just living in ways that are just lost, doing harm to one another, not good for us. So I want to say, I notice amongst younger generations of Christians, and I admire this, a zeal for the environment that my generation has not had. Proof is, we're the ones that have messed it up. But the best way to put creation right is to deal with human beings is to change the hearts of human beings. So firstly, the wrath of God is being revealed in creation now. Secondly, the wrath of God is the outcome of disobedience to God's law. You'll notice that the angels with the bowls of wrath emerge from the temple or tabernacle of testimony. I think the NIV said that the tabernacle, the tent of covenant law. It means this, that God's law is the basis for his wrath. They emerge with this wrath from the place where the stone tablets were kept. God's law was kept. It's a picture. God's law is the basis for his wrath. It's not arbitrary. He's already told us how to live. He's already told us what obedience is and disobedience is. Let me just say this to you, brother, sister, here this morning. If your life is, is not on track and you're conscious of that and you just think, I'm, I'm not lining up somewhere here, things have gone awry. Let me ask you this question. Are you living in obedience to God's word or disobedience to it? And if you're not sure, it may be you've neglected it to such an extent that you don't know. And I encourage you, get back to his word then. Because if you base, I guarantee you, I would stake my house on it, my car, my worldly possessions on the fact, if you build your life on God's word, you will not be sorry. I guarantee it. I'd stake, I am so confident of that. Lives built on the word of God are built well. But if we don't, we will face his wrath. He's already told us this. He's set in creation, that creation is wired Human society is wired to flourish when it's built according to God's word. And it will not flourish when we try and build it ourselves, when we try and build towers of Babel, as it were. As it were. Daryl Johnson, 
has said this. When we violate God's law, we violate ourselves. We go up against morality. There's, there's no winning there. You can choose a morality for yourself. You can think this is the best way to live. But if you're not, if your morality isn't according to God's law, it won't work. It won't be healthy. We end up ruining ourselves and creation around it. We are choosing in this day and age, postmodern thinking, moral relativism, we are choosing our own morality and reaping the consequences of it. God's told us the best. I'm not just talking sexual morality. I'm talking financial morality, ethics right across the board. We're on a loser if we choose to go our own way. Thirdly, the wrath of God, it will be satisfied. It will be satisfied. The passage, Revelation 15, begins by saying that with these bowls, the wrath of God is completed. It's fulfilled. There's no access, we read, to the temple until the wrath of God is dealt with. And then... We have access to God. God's holiness, his purity, has to be just. And he has to judge. And in Revelation 16, 17, it says, with the seventh bowl, it was proclaimed, it is done. And I want to say to you again, there will be no injustice in the world left undone. That's a good thing, isn't it? You just think that through a minute. Let me ask you on a personal level. What's been done to you? What's been done to you that was unfair? That was really nasty? That you've never never been able to get back on and maybe you've grown bitter in it. Let me tell you, you don't have to be bitter. Someone has said bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person cops it. You don't need to be bitter. Entrust that situation, entrust that person to God and say, God, have your way. I've I've known times when I've done this in my life and it's freeing. But also it means this, the harm done to children. One day God will write that. God will make sure that people don't get away with that. I think think some of the corruption in our Western society around finance and the way we make money and the way we, you know, just use the rest of the world as a commodity sometimes. And and you you think, you know, what can I do as an individual? Well, maybe not lots, but, but one day, men and women, we will be called to account and we will affirm that as a good thing so that no injustice will be left undone. So that's some of what this passage says about the wrath of God. How can we we develop our understanding such that we might align with his wrath? I'm tempted to say, are you enjoying yourselves this morning? Are we having a good time here, Beck? Let's just carry on. How can we develop our understanding? And like I've said, honestly, as I look at it, emotionally, I'm not entirely reconciled here yet. I'll come on to that. I found myself a little while back just looking and thinking, well, Lord, I do believe that for those who don't know Christ, there is a lost eternity. I think there is, there is judgment outside of Christ. Our sins are not dealt with. We're not forgiven. We don't have access to God's heaven. And therefore, we face a lost eternity. And 
I believe the Bible teaches that means eternal punishment. And, and whether we would hold to some other teachings like annihilation, whatever the case, it does not look good outside of Christ at the judgment. And we would not want to be there. And so I found myself thinking, Lord, does that, does that mean you damn? Why do you damn? What about vulnerable people? What about victims? People that have gone through life and just had a really rough deal. Does that mean if they are nonetheless still responsible for their response to Christ? And I struggle with that. Ultimately, I'm reconciled that I think God is good. But what I mean, do you understand what I mean? Emotionally, I struggle with that. Well, maybe some of these thoughts will help us. Firstly, I don't think we understand the harm caused by sin and evil. You see, we watch the news, don't we? And we become impervious to pain and suffering. When we see the cruelty around the world, when we see the harm, when we see the poverty, when we see starvation, when we see death, when we see what we do to one another as human beings. And the problem is this, we don't get, this is not what God intended. His heart breaks. But we kind of, if you're anything like me, my response, you know, there might be an emotional response to suffering that I see in the world, but I pretty much guarantee you the next morning I'll wake up and I'll be looking at the football fixtures or rugby fixtures to see, well, what's on Sky Sports today? We don't understand, we don't feel the harm of sin and evil. We don't get angry with it. We have the capacity to solve poverty. We have the capacity to solve food problems in the world, to ensure water supply is given around the world. Why don't we? Because fundamentally there are societies, it's in our own heart, that we're prone to look after ourselves and not to pay the cost for others. And we do that as corporate society. And so, like I say, I think the Western society, I think in the West, we will have a lot to answer for on the judgment. Because we have so many resources at our disposal that could bless and benefit the world. But do we do it? Do we pay the cost, the extra cost for goods produced ethically, etc., etc.? And that's only the start. Do I get angry about the sin in the world? And we downplay, don't we, our own selfish capacity. We think basically we're not that bad. And we may not have committed heinous crimes, but we know, don't we, that were we born in that situation, were we to have had that upbringing, who knows how we could have turned out. And there but for the grace of God, go I, thank you, Lord, that you've kept me in some measure. I could show you things that aren't pleasant about me, but thank you that you've kept me in some measure. We bought into, I think, a humanistic worldview that says humankind is basically good, they just need the right circumstances. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't think history tells us that. From 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the education system we have now in this nation is tremendous. The medical care we have is amazing. Materially, we are well off. 
well, we must be in utopia then, mustn't we? we must, surely we must now be living in this perfect society. This, I googled dystopia, which is when the world doesn't go right. You see, again, have we created utopia or does that selfish capacity we have to look after ourselves, me and my family, is that, has that created the society we live in? We don't understand the harm caused by sin and evil. Secondly, let's keep moving. We don't understand how obstinate and willful we are. Do I just kind of make mistakes and, you know, and, and just kind of get it wrong every now and again? Or am I fundamentally outside of God but for his help? Am I pretty obstinate and pretty willful? You know, don't you, the most popular song chosen at funerals is my way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Well, that's not how God wants us to live. He wants us to live his way, yielded, surrendered in submission to him. But the prophets we see come to Israel, they say, you're like obstinate children. Isaiah 30. Are you anything like me? Do you just know you can be a bit willful, a bit obstinate? Holy Spirit, soften us. Help us to yield. Help us to choose God's way. And in Revelation, with the trumpets and with the bowls of wrath, in Revelation 16, 9 and 11, God is still calling out for people to repent. To say, God, I want to go your way. I choose your way. But it says they refused to repent. They wanted to go their way. And if that's the case... We're responsible for the consequences of our actions then. Thirdly, I think it might help us to align and stand with God in his wrath if we understand, even by faith, that God is just. Even if it's by faith. 1 Corinthians 13, you see, says, presently we know in part. One day we will know fully. And I think that goes for the wrath of God. We only get it in part for those reasons I've just explained. We don't understand the consequences of sin. We don't understand how willful we are. One day we'll see fully. And at this point, though, we just have to trust to take it on faith. That in the words of Genesis 18, when I used to, when I first became a Christian and tried to think this through. What do you mean God saves people and, and what some people are going to be under his judgment? There's a verse in Genesis 18. Abraham is negotiating with God about Sodom and saying, God, for the sake of 10 righteous people, will you not save this city? What about for five? And then he says this to God. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Whether we get this or not, whether we understand it, whether we can be reconciled emotionally to it, what you can do is this. You can take on faith the judge of all the earth. He will do right. He will do right. This may not play well out there, but we can stand by it. Listen, he will do right. Personally, I don't know who else I'd want to be sorting out justice in the world. 
I'm not sure I want to leave it to the United Nations, where only, you know, where certain countries have a veto and it's not worldwide anyway. I'm not sure I want it to leave it in the hands of any particular government. I think I'm better off leaving it in God's hands and trusting that he will do right. And isn't our experience of him that he is a good, good father? That the one who is judge is a good, good father? Isn't that your experience of him? Don't you know him to be good? So you can hold, Lord, I know you've loved me personally and I'm going to trust that somehow even your judgment, even your anger, even your wrath is out of your goodness, comes from your goodness. Finally, I think it will help us to align with wrath if we understand the work of Jesus on the cross. This is the place, thank God, God ultimately dealt with his wrath against sin and evil. I believe the Bible teaches he poured it on his son. It's why I asked the band to sing in Christ alone. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God, thank God, It ain't coming my way. The wrath of God is not coming my way. Why? Because he poured it on his son. And I stand now under the blood of Jesus. I've trusted the cross. I've trusted Jesus. That wrath is not coming to me. I'll experience things in the world, perhaps as God's wrath is experienced in the world. But fundamentally on the judgment day, my plea is that I've trusted Christ. In Christ alone. Are we, is it in before the throne of God? I have a strong, a perfect plea. Jesus. Jesus. That's it. Right there. Nailed it. Literally. Is that your plea? Is that what you're trusting? Isaiah 63, you see, says this. This is what happened to Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him. I think we should read this together. Why don't we read this together? If this is your declaration, you declare this now. Declare that Jesus has done this for you. Let's read this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you took my punishment. The Old Testament says he stood between the living and the dead. And so there's no need for anyone to face this terrible, awful anger of God, pure, unadulterated, steady anger of God at sin. There's no need for us, any of us. Even though we have sinned, we can be forgiven if we trust the blood of Christ. So what's our response? As Christians, I think our response is firstly to be thankfulness. 
I think you should sit something in your spirit this morning, whatever else, whether you agree with all this or not, is to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. And secondly, doesn't it make the proclamation of the gospel urgent? God, let us be a church. Holy Spirit, move among us where we cannot sit on our hands with all that we thought about this morning. But let us be a church that are keen to proclaim your gospel. But also I want to say this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself that. Let your response firstly be urgency. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Can I say to you, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can I encourage you, you need to respond today because you just don't know what will happen tomorrow. And secondly, let your response be thankfulness. I want to say to you, embrace the cross. Embrace what Jesus has done for you. By faith, say to God, God, I believe that. I trust you. Thank you for dying for me. We're going to take just a minute to respond in quiet. We're going to ask the band to come back up. And we are going to respond in song. We're going to affirm the truths of Scripture. But I think it would be good just to sit quietly and just respond yourself to what we've heard. Like I say, I'm pleased that's over. But I do believe it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that in the quietness of our hearts now, you would find thankful people, people who cling more strongly. Their grip is firmer on the cross than it's ever been because they know it is the place of deliverance, forgiveness. Lord, I pray if there are any of us who have conviction that we've been a bit willful, soften our hearts by your spirit. So let's just take a moment just to respond however you feel appropriate in prayer to God.